So we'll be in Genesis 37. We'll be starting at verse 12. Um, but we have many new faces here this morning, many of you who have just joined us from the youth group. So I thought it might be beneficial to recap where we have been so far, uh, both for those of you who are new and then for those who have been with us through the whole time. Uh, just for fun, I checked to see how long we've been in the book of Genesis, and we are just coming up in two weeks. We will have been in the book for two years. So we started this in June of 2021. Uh, two years is a long time, and there's a lot that we have to remember, but don't worry, I don't plan on recapping every single narrative from creation up to the life of Joseph. But we should get some background uh, so that we can, um, as Justin likes to ask us on Tuesdays, find out who we are, where we're going, and how we have gotten here. So first and foremost, uh, here at the beginning, there's one thing and one thing only that we've been instructed to remember, to know. If you've come through this Genesis class, uh, you must know this one fact. Does anyone know what that one fact is? Say it louder. <laughs> Moses wrote Genesis. Yes, Moses is the author of this book. You may wonder, why is this so important? And the reasoning behind this is that if we deny such a fundamental biblical truth uh, here at the outset, here at the beginning, we're setting ourselves up to doubt and deny other things throughout Scripture. Now, if no part of the Bible made any claims as to who wrote this book, who the author was, that would be one thing. I'm not up here imploring everybody to have a firm uh, stance on the author of the book of Job, for example. But the Mosaic authorship of Genesis is clear throughout the Bible, with even Jesus himself saying, the Pentateuch was written by Moses. This is not my lesson for this morning, obviously, but I hope that it serves as a good reminder to be faithful to what the Bible has to say. You'll often hear people come against smaller things that don't seem to be consequential, and it can be easy to think that it doesn't matter when we get into things such as the authors of a book, because it's the words and not the author that matters, right? But the more room that you give to doubt in areas of Scripture, the more dangerous it is and the more likely that you are to begin excusing other, more grievous errors. Next, before I jump into the text, I want to give some timeline and discuss the two ways that we can divide up the events of Genesis. So the first division is the one that bears most significance to our lives today, and that's between the events before Genesis 3 and then everything that follows in the book of Genesis. In the first chapters, we see God create everything, and that it is all very good. But in Genesis chapter 3, we see Adam and Eve sin and the resulting curse that happens after that sin. And it is at this turning point that suffering and pain and everything comes into this world that we get this explanation as to why the world is the way it is today. All these things, sin, suffering, permeates all of the aspects of our life. And when we see this, we can see this and know that God is keeping the promise that he made to Adam regarding how the world is going to work as a result of his sin. We've been reminded of this over and over, but it is worth repeating again. When you encounter evil in this world, if you have the understanding that the world is the way it is because of the sin, that was committed in Genesis 3 and the sin that dwells within our hearts, it will transform the way that you think about the world. And then the other main division that can be made in the book of Genesis is what will bring us into our lesson here this morning. For the first 11 chapters of this book, we are looking at the events on a worldwide scale, setting the stage for us to see how and why the world works the way that it does. The events of creation, the fall, the flood, and the Tower of Babel all establish the global events that we need to see so where the world is going, how it works, 
all the fundamental truths of the world. In chapter 12, we zoom into one specific family who receives the specific promise of a blessing that will start out within their family and then ultimately bless the whole world. So it's this family that we once again find ourselves focused on this morning. We've watched each of the patriarchs as they have demonstrated their sinful nature, their impatience, lack of trust, their favoritism, and ultimately their humanity. But we've also watched and rejoiced as we have seen the provision of the Lord God as he has upheld the promise and allowed these men to fulfill his plan. So this week, we're going to continue on and see the effects of the favoritism, fury, and foolishness that Nathan introduced to us last week. And yet there's one more thing woven throughout this passage and throughout all of Scripture, really, and that is God's faithfulness. So as we take some time this morning to look at this fairly familiar account, let us remember the ongoing work of God. This chapter may not have a happy ending, but with God, even the worst things will turn out for the good of those who he has called according to his purpose. So now we will read the text, and then we can dive into the account and glean from it. So Genesis 37, I'll be reading beginning at verse 12. It says, Then his brothers went to pasture their father's flock in Shechem. Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock in Shechem? Come, and I will send you to them. And he said to him, I will go. Then he said to him, Go now and see about the welfare of your brothers and the welfare of the flock, and bring word back to me. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. A man found him, and behold, he was wandering in the field, and the man asked him, What are you looking for? He said, I am looking for my brothers. Please tell me where they are pasturing the flock. Then the man said, They have moved from here, for I heard them say, Let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. When they saw him from a distance, and before he came close to them, they plotted against him to put him to death. They said to one another, Here comes this dreamer. Now then, come and let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits, and we will say a wild beast devoured him. Then let us see what will become of his dreams. But Reuben heard of this and rescued him out of their hands and said, Let us not take his life. Reuben further said to them, Shed no blood. Throw him into this pit that is in the wilderness, but do not lay hands on him, that he might rescue him out of their hands to restore him to his father. So it came about when Joseph reached his brothers that they stripped Joseph of his tunic, the very colored tunic that was on him, and they took him and threw him into the pit. Now the pit was empty without any water in it. Then they sat down to eat a meal, and as they raised their eyes and looked, behold, a caravan of Ishmaelites was coming from Gilead with their camels bearing aromatic gum and balm and myrrh on their way to bring them down to Egypt. Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it for us to kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come and let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him. For he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then some Midianite traders passed by, so they pulled him up and lifted Joseph out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. Thus they brought Joseph into Egypt. Now Reuben returned to the pit, and behold, Joseph was not in the pit, so he tore his garments. He returned to his brothers and said, The boy is not there. As for me, where am I to go? So they took Joseph's tunic and slaughtered a male goat and dipped the tunic in the blood. And they sent the very colored tunic and brought it to their father and said, We found this. Please examine it to see whether it is your son's tunic or not. Then he examined it and said, It is my son's tunic. A wild beast has devoured him. Joseph has surely been torn to pieces. So Jacob tore his clothes and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. Then all his sons and all his daughters arose to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. And he said, Surely I will go down to Sheol in mourning for my son. So his father wept for him. Mild Eonites sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, Pharaoh's officer, the captain of the bodyguard. 
Let me pray for us this morning. Dear Lord, we thank you for your word, uh, for this book that we can come to and see from it. pray that as we uh, consider the events of this chapter, that you would guide our thoughts, that we would uh, be able to see from this how we are to think about life, how we are to think about the things that we uh, encounter, and that you would receive glory and honor as a result of it. We pray this in your name. Amen. So, I don't really have much of an outline this morning. I just kind of divide it up into sections as we go throughout the passage. Um, but as you're taking notes, if you just want to kind of, you can segment it. Uh, we're in our first section. We see um, from verse 12, his brothers went to pasture their father's flock in Shechem. So this should cause a little bit of curiosity for those of us who are here for chapter 34, as we may wonder how it is that Jacob is sending his flocks to the, uh, the land of Shechem. If we remember correctly, Jacob's older sons went overkill in taking revenge for their sister's harm to the point that they killed every man in Shechem. On the one hand, it may make sense for Jacob to have possession of these lands since the people there would be defenseless and under the fear of Jacob's sons. But if we remember, at the end of that chapter, Jacob would rather not look back upon that area. He was ashamed of what his sons had done and he was fearful of those who remained. Now, I can't speculate as to what happened to change Jacob's mind as to why he is now willing to send his flocks and his sons to that area, but I can speak to the facts that Jacob's sons are supposed to have taken their father's flocks to Shechem. Whether this is out of boldness on Jacob's part or if it is against his better judgment, I'm not sure, but in either case, there's probably some level of risk being taken here that Jacob is concerned about them. So we see he, uh, Jacob saying to Joseph uh, to go and send him to uh, look on the flocks to maybe spy on his brothers. We've seen at least on one other occasion he's sent Joseph to find a report. Um, the phrasing here is interesting, though. He says, uh, go check on the welfare of your brothers, the welfare of the flock. Uh, in verse 4 of this chapter, after Joseph's last excursion to check on his brothers, we see their anger kindled against him to the point where, as the ESV says, they could not speak peacefully to him. Now Jacob is asking Joseph to find out about the welfare, and According to those who know the original language of this text, the word for welfare is another form of the word for peacefulness, this peacefulness that was impossible for his brothers to have. In this moment, Jacob asked Joseph to see if they have peacefulness with the sheep. Now, I don't think there's any accident in the way that this is written. Moses, the author of this book, is writing a narrative, and just because the subject matter is historical fact does not mean that there cannot be a place for creative writing devices such as repetition. By repeating this phrasing, Moses is drawing our attention to the fact that there ought to be a peaceful relationship between Joseph and his brothers. In the New Testament, we find that true wisdom exhibits peacefulness, as in James 3.17, we see a description of the wisdom from above being pure and then peaceable. Through this, we can see that the direct contrast to the foolishness that is exhibited on both sides here is a peaceable wisdom that seeks to quell the quarrels and conflicts that can so easily hinder us. So let's look at Jacob's decision to send Joseph away. Now, in our lives, we often run into situations where the person in authority is oblivious to the fighting that goes on for those underneath them. It's one of the things that I like least about my position as a manager at Chick-fil-A is I hate that I have to keep up with who's got beef with the coworkers on any given day and playing the role of conflict resolver. Now, as someone who does something like this routinely, I'm wondering here at Jacob, wondering if he's oblivious to the way that the brothers have been treating Joseph. Now, maybe he doesn't take their behavior seriously, or maybe the brothers are wary enough to put on a good act in front of their father when it comes to the, uh, their opinions on his favorite son. 
And we're already aware that Jacob does not possess the most tactful parenting skills, so it is entirely possible that he is as oblivious as he seems. Now, on the other hand, Jacob might think that sending Joseph to his brothers would be helpful. He may be taking this opportunity to send Joseph out to his brothers in order to reconcile them to each other. This would align with his request that Joseph obtain information as to how peaceful the brothers were. It also appears that Jacob truly does want to check in on his other sons, especially given the place that they're at. They may not be the most welcome of visitors. We can't simply look at this text with Joseph as the most important person. After all, that's how we're kind of in this mess to begin with. I think the best way to interpret Jacob's sending of Joseph is a simple consistency. He sent Joseph in the past to check on the brothers, and he knows that there could be the possibility of danger for his other sons, and he wants to make sure that his flocks and his pastures are being taken care of. But regardless of the full motivations, by sending Joseph to check on his brothers, things are now in motion that cannot be undone. And from this point forward, every step that Joseph takes will lead him further away from his home, from his bed, and the dreams that he has had than he has ever gone before. So now we are in our next section. Joseph is wandering in the field. So Joseph makes his way to Shechem, and immediately he realizes there's a striking shortage of both sheep and brothers. The wording here of Joseph wandering in the field generates a vivid mental image for me. So I picture Joseph arriving at Shechem, and he realizes his brothers aren't there, and just kind of begins to shuffle around, you know, peeking around trees and shrubs, and half-heartedly calling out for their names and just resigning himself to the fact that the brothers aren't there. You know how it goes. You know, you'd be helping your parents with a task around the house and they send you to go get something for them and it's exactly where they told you to find it and all of a sudden you're distracted with a blender or a screwdriver or something and you're wandering around the house and you realize, oh, hey, I was supposed to be helping them with something. You've got Joseph just wandering aimlessly around the fields. And then all of a sudden he's stopped by some random unnamed individual. So Joseph is clearly looking for something here in the field, and it's clearly not there. So this man does what anyone else would do, like, hey, what are you looking for? Um, it would appear this man is probably a local. He lives in the area, um, or at least is familiar with what is going on here. He's been around the area long enough to have the information that Joseph is looking for. Now, there are a few who might speculate that this is a messenger from God sent to guide Joseph in his journey, but this view has no real support, and it detracts from the overall theme of God using what we might call unplanned or coincidental events to bring about his purposes. Our first response to this random encounter might be one of happiness at this serendipitous fortune. If we're in Joseph's shoes, we'd be glad to have some guidance in order to find out uh, information that would allow us to obey Jacob's command. But we know the context of the chapter. Because this man just so happens to know where Joseph's brothers are, Joseph is able to find them, and as a result, he is sold into slavery. Now, this happy chance encounter turns into a very misfortunate occurrence, a case of being in the wrong place at the wrong time. And yet, we cannot stop with simply the context of the chapter, but we know the outcome of the book of Genesis and the life of Joseph as a whole. I won't get ahead of the story too much, but we know that Joseph learns through this experience that what man may mean for evil, God will use for good. And I don't know how everybody's thought processes go, how everybody thinks, but I knew that I know that myself, I face the temptation to do this kind of overthinking about um, small, random occurrences. When it comes to random things that are outside of my control, it's easy for me to dwell on what might have happened if the timing of the situation had been slightly different or if I had restrained from saying something in a particular manner. While there is a time and a place to properly evaluate our thinking, 
to take every thought captive, as Paul tells us, it is not okay to be consumed by the what-ifs of life. When we find ourselves replaying our lives over and over again, wondering if we would have been more successful or had a better experience if we had just done one thing differently, we are being characterized by worry. I know that we typically think of worry in the future tense, being concerned with what is to come, but this kind of overthinking is a form of worry in the past tense, displaying that we doubt God's plan in the way that it goes forth. So moving forward, we see that Joseph finds his brothers at Dothan exactly where this man says that they should be, and exactly not where Jacob thought that they would be. Dothan is almost another full day's journey past Shechem. It's about 13 miles, so we wonder what motivates this change of plans. A couple of possibilities come to mind. They may have been still wary of showing their faces in this area um, where they went on such a killing spree. Uh, they probably weren't the most welcome visitors again. So they take an extra day's journey out of self-preservation. Additionally, I think that there's the chance that they are trying to avoid another inspection from Joseph. They do delay his arrival. They cannot prevent it, though. So they see him coming from a distance. So we cut from observing Joseph's wandering and searching, kind of panning out to see him as a figure in the distance. Joseph is wearing his special tunic, which is probably what allows the brothers to identify him while he is still yet a long way off. And as soon as they recognize who's approaching, they immediately spiral into a speed run of the seven abominable sins found in Proverbs 6, 16 through 19. I'm going to read that here. So Proverbs 6, 16. There are six things which the Lord hates. Yes, seven which are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood. A heart that devises wicked plans, feet that rapidly to evil. A false witness who utters lies, and one who spreads strife among brothers. So almost immediately, we see how quickly these men turn their opinions and thoughts into intentions and desires. After Joseph's first visit, their anger was rooted in the poor report that he brought back to Jacob. This time, we see them focused on something else. They're focused on his dreams. I think that the intensity with which they fight against his dreams is an indicator that they believe his dreams are something that are quite possible to be fulfilled. If they were treating this as if it was the babbling of their baby brother, why would they bother fighting against it? It would be as if someone made it their mission in life to fight against children's belief in the tooth fairy. Sure, you'd be bringing into you'd be bringing reality into a fantasy, but why waste your energy on something that would become evident later on? No, I think that the brothers' fears here are motivated by the fact that they know that these dreams are actual signs from the Lord God. It is because of this belief that they begin to do whatever they can to put an end to Joseph, because there is no need to bow down to a dead man. So the speed with which the brothers assemble their plan makes you think that perhaps this was not a new plan, but rather a new opportunity to enact it. We can take this as a warning, as Proverbs tells us, not to be quick to devise wicked plans. And we all know that the sins of the heart are just as wicked and detestable before God as are the sins that we commit in action. But I think we can often fall into the wrong way of thinking about them, where we justify our sinful thoughts by telling us that we would never act upon them. Even though we may never plan to act in this way, we dig out the track for our mind to treat it as if it was something that we might do. Like the saying goes, if you hang, out, hang around a barbershop long enough, you're going to get a haircut eventually. So we ought to be alert and putting to death every evil desire. So now we get to hear from a new character that we've not heard from yet. Um, we've seen some of his actions. We've Reuben uh, defending Joseph. So rather than actively killing Joseph, Reuben suggests that they should let him die on his own in a nearby pit. So the suggestion is appealing to the brothers that they should not be the ones who 
directly shed Joseph's blood. And yet Moses reveals to us that Reuben had an ulterior motive in mind. Now, when I would hear this story growing up, I always assumed that Reuben was an undercover good guy who had just let the peer pressure of his brothers allow him to go around, go along with their hateful plans. Now, especially since he was the oldest and I was the oldest, it was kind of like, yeah, you've got to be one of the better, better brothers. Um, <laughs> but this is the first time that we see any of the brothers behaving any differently to Joseph. And it comes as a surprise that Reuben would desire to restore Joseph to Jacob. First, it would be difficult to uh, hide the fact that Joseph was alive and in the tents of Jacob once the brothers had last seen him left for dead in a pit. Second, Reuben himself doesn't have the best track record as the last time we were made aware of his actions was when he tried to take one of his father's concubines for himself. So given what we know then, it seems that Reuben's plans here are an attempt to restore himself in some form of favor before Jacob, rather than out of any innate desire to do what is good. Reuben may have seen that his position as the firstborn was not going to be enough to secure a firstborn's blessing, and hoped that saving Joseph's life would be enough to get back on Jacob's good side. Ultimately, though, regardless of what Reuben had in mind when formulating his plan, God uses this as a way to keep Joseph alive. So it came about when Joseph reached his brothers that they stripped Joseph of his tunic, the very colored tunic that was on him, and they took him and threw him into the pit. Now the pit was empty without any water in it. So Reuben has enough sway over the brothers to convince them to adhere to his plan. As soon as Joseph reaches his brothers, he is carried away and his special garment is taken from him. Joseph's brothers are getting rid of the symbols of their father's favoritism. The text makes sure to mention that the pit was empty, and the significance of an empty well here is that this well is useless. Nobody is going to be sustained through the lack of water that is there. Nobody is going to be camping around here. It's abandoned, deserted. Nobody is going to hear Joseph's cries for help. Throwing Joseph into an empty well is just as much a death sentence as any other type, and in some ways this would be a worse way to die because it would be quite slow and painful. Immediately after this, we see that they then sat down to eat a meal. Now, this classifies as one of those situations that I have a hard time picturing happening, um, even as is clearly described in the text. Reuben is the only one who has yet had any thought to preventing Joseph's death, so as for the rest of the brothers, this is nearly the equivalent of sitting down with a picnic lunch in front of a public execution. They had every intention of leaving Joseph until he was dead, and for them, it was just time for their lunch break. Joseph, the son of their father, was lying injured in a pit, ready to die at the actions of his brothers, and they don't give it a second thought. And again, this is where things like flannel graphs and veggie tales can desensitize us to the reality here. But these weren't just some boys pushing their brother into a trench. This was a very real group of men committing what would become murder, and yet they treat it as callously as if they had just thrown a cucumber down a mine shaft. And yet it gets even worse. They raised their eyes and looked, and behold, a caravan of Ishmaelites was coming from Gilead with their camels on their way down to bring all these things down to Egypt. So we see that something finally happens to remind these men that Joseph is, in fact, a part of their family. And it's the promise of money that gets them to consider that maybe they don't need Joseph to die to let his dreams die as well. And again, it still astounds me, after hearing this narrative over and over again, that these men have so little regard for their brother. Now, I've harped upon the family aspect, incredulous that they could do this to a relative, but something that makes even further is what implications this would hold in light of the Abrahamic covenant and the promises that have been made to this family. This family has spent much time waiting for the promised nation to begin developing, and now as soon as there seems to be a chance of this happening, they cannot live in peace with one another. 
Now, we saw this a little bit with Jacob and Esau to an extent, but in their case, that was somewhat understandable. In Genesis 25, God gave the promise that Jacob and Esau would, in fact, be two different nations. The promise was passed to Jacob, but not to Esau. The distinctions between Jacob and Esau were ones that originated with God and not with man. But in the case of Jacob and his sons, every act of distinction was on man's decision and not one commanded by God. We come so far in Genesis, and we've seen every step of the way since chapter 3. We've seen all the difficulty, we've seen all the despair, but we've also seen God's plan continue, not in spite of sinful men, but because of them. It's very difficult to wrap our minds around how a holy God can use sin in accomplishing his purposes without being tainted or corrupted by it. So it's only by faith that we can recognize his holiness is far greater than ours and his power and sovereignty will prevail. So now we see Judah for the first time in a speaking role. So through the context, we can learn that Reuben is not present at this time, and so someone must stand up and make a decision for the group. Judah is not the next oldest brother. Actually, if we remember, he's the fourth oldest. As we know, Simeon and Levi are brothers number two and three, and they are most certainly not afraid of taking charge of a situation. Whereas Simeon and Levi have a kill everyone, ask questions later approach, Judah has a bit more of the wily nature that is passed on from his father. He presents a simple trade offer. They can get 20 shekels of silver for Joseph, and they don't have to worry about his brother's body. And the Ishmaelites would get a nice young slave to take down to Egypt and turn a profit on. Judah finally here admits that Joseph is their brother, he's their relative, their own flesh, and it probably wouldn't rest easy on their consciences if they had to through life with the guilt of his murder looming over them. So initially as I read this, I thought, oh yeah, the Ishmaelites, you know, they're descended from Abraham, they're only like second cousins, a couple times removed, this wouldn't be that bad. But in reality, the culture of this time can be demonstrated here, so you remember how quickly family groups would split up and become their own people. Now, sure, these were descendants of Abraham, but they were not God's chosen people, and they would not have his promises guiding them. This wasn't a case of sending Joseph over to their cousins so they wouldn't have to deal with him anymore. This was an all-out attempt to rid themselves of their brother, essentially their backup plan to murdering him. Now, Reuben returned to the pit, and behold, Joseph was not in the pit, so he tore his garments. He returned to his brothers and said, The boy is not there. As for me, where am I to go? In this, we get to see a bit more of Reuben's character and some more insight into his motives. For whatever reason, he thinks it's safe to leave Joseph alone with a group of men who are ready to kill him. So honestly, I don't know why he is surprised that he comes back to find Joseph gone. His words are telling, revealing the fact that he did not, in fact, care about Joseph's well-being or his safety, but rather his own. With the Ishmaelite caravan disappearing into the distance, Reuben sees his chances of good favor with, good favor with his father disappearing as well. So the brothers decide they ought to come up with a cover story to make sure there is no blame associated with themselves. They had kept Joseph's robes for the purpose of using them as a deception. The tunic was created specifically for Joseph and would have been unique and recognizable. After all, it is what called Joseph's presence to their attention in the first place. But in sending this to, Joseph, to Jacob, they act as though they have no idea where it came from. But perhaps didn't Joseph have one of these? And Jacob gets it, and he examines it, and he says, This is my son's tunic. A wild beast has devoured him. Joseph has surely been torn to pieces. Now, when the brothers see Jacob's response, they are surely delighted that he has taken faith. Jacob has probably been worried about Joseph ever since he has been out of his sight, and in his worry, he doesn't even think that perhaps something fishy is going on here. Now, it strikes me that Jacob was, back in the day, an expert on shepherding, and yet he doesn't even notice that the blood on the tunic does not resemble that of a 
boy, but of a goat. Jacob immediately goes into despair after this and refuses to think any deeper on the circumstances of Joseph's apparent death, choosing instead to wallow in his depression. Pretty quickly, the rest of Jacob's children realize that he is not coming out of this sorrow onto his own, in, in, on his own, and they encourage him and they try to comfort him. But slowly they come to the realization that Jacob is not going to let anyone comfort him. Now, perhaps Jacob's sons had hoped that with Joseph out of the picture, that some of the favor and the gifts that uh, might get redistributed to the rest of them. But instead, Jacob lets his life be characterized by sorrow and mourning, and he will not allow himself to be consoled. Everything that anyone does for him now is somehow connected to Joseph, and Jacob lets this event excuse his misery for many years to come. Now, I hope that none of us go through something like Jacob does, where we find ourselves unknowingly being comforted by those who are causing us harm. But I also hope that in no circumstance will you allow a tragedy to define your life. There is a time to mourn, and we are to weep with those who weep, but we must also find our comfort and joy in Christ. A believer who is characterized by sadness is one who is living in sin. We ought to remember that no part of our life, no matter how tragic, is something that will take away the gift of salvation and the joy that is found in Christ. Now, looking ahead on the schedule, who's teaching when and next, um, I'm, not, I'm trying not to steal from Michael too much in chapter 39, but as Joseph is now in Egypt, sometime between chapter 37 and 39, something happens in his life that pushes him to trust in God wholeheartedly. Now, all we know about Joseph up until the end of this chapter is that he was spoiled by his father and hated by his brothers. And to be sure, we don't see too many opportunities for Joseph to display his character. There's a bit of speculation here. We see that Joseph was beloved by Jacob more than any of his sons. We see Jacob was the one, was the recipient of the promise from God that he would be a great nation and that through him all peoples of the world would be blessed. So if you're Jacob with a favorite son, you would be telling this son constantly of that promise. Joseph has likely grown up with this ever-present reminder of the great things that would be done through his family. And as he is now sitting in servitude to Potiphar, the words of the promise are what he is using to keep himself grounded. I'm not saying that the trials of our lives are quite comparable to murder attempts and being sold into slavery, but let's draw some comparisons. As many of us have grown up through the church and been taught faithfully of the wonderful things regarding salvation in the church, the challenge here, then, is to keep those things close to your heart. When trials come and you seek something to comfort you, don't first turn to your friends or your entertainment or the things of this world for comfort. When, and it is a when and not an if, when you find yourself in despair in a circumstance that you could never have expected, you have to cling to Christ above all else. Surround yourself with the body of Christ and let the truth of Scripture be your anchor. Um, let's go ahead and I will close in prayer here for this morning. Dear Lord, I just again thank you for your word. Thank you for uh, the lives of the patriarchs, of these men that we get to see their actions, we see their sinfulness, and we are reminded of our own. Um, we thank you that you have given us your word again to guide us. Um, thank you for um, just the allowance that you have given us of salvation, that we do not have to go throughout trials and tribulations without hope, but that we can rest in our salvation, that we can rest in the church, that we can uh, find ourselves grounded in you. Pray that we would be an encouragement to one another, that we would 
speak the truth to one another, that even in the midst of dark and uh, difficult circumstances, that trials would not overwhelm us, that we would not fall into despair, but that we would think rightly about them. Just pray as we continue throughout our week, throughout our uh, service to the church, throughout our work, um, or anything that you have for us to do, that we would be mindful of you, that we would be thinking rightly, that we would think properly about every circumstance that we encounter, and that you would be brought the most praise and the most glory and the most honor. And it is in your name that we pray these things. Amen.